0: Is my microphone on? Can you guys hear me okay? All right, good. I hope there's joy in your heart this morning, really. Uh, the worship gathering of the saints is meant to be a time that we obviously learn from God's word, but it's a time of joy as well, because we're gathering each and every Sunday as a remembrance of the resurrection of Christ and then of, of a time of anticipation of the future and, is, and what's coming. And you can't have genuine hope without joy. Hope is something that looks forward to the future and says, I'm excited about that. I know what's coming. And despite the difficulties and the suffering and the pain and the frustration of life on this earth, I am thrilled with my future prospects. And so our time together should be exactly what it already has been this morning, a time of rejoicing and joy in the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ and who he is and what he's done. Well, you're probably already open to John 5. That's where we're going to be this morning. Let me pray real quick and ask for the Lord's help as we address this passage this morning, and then we'll get into it. Father, be with us now. We have sung out of hearts that are joyful in you and exalting you for who you are. I pray now that you would take the truth of your word, that you would connect this to our daily lives, that you would instruct us and inform us, and that the result of this would be a change in our hearts, that we would see Jesus Christ for who he truly is, that we would begin to understand the relationship between the Father and the Son to a greater degree, and that that would cause us to worship you even more and rejoice in you even more and exalt you even more. Holy Spirit, be with us now. Illuminate our minds. Open our hearts. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, there are... I'm sure you know two religions in the world that make up over half of the world's population if you combine these two religions, Christianity and Islam. Christianity, and we're defining that quite broadly, including Catholics, Protestant Christians, which is where we find ourselves, and Orthodox churches, those all together make up around 2.1 billion people. And Islam, the second largest faith in the world, accounts for about 1.3 billion people. If someone were to ask you this morning to articulate the difference, the most fundamental difference between Christianity and Islam, what would you say? It may be of some interest to you to know that Muslims believe that Jesus Christ was the Messiah and that he was sent by God to reveal truth about God. But that's where their understanding of him stops. And the Quran is actually quite clear to deny the deity of Jesus Christ and explicitly denies the doctrine of the Trinity. I'm actually going to read you a quote from the Quran this morning. This is from book four of the Quran, which is entitled Women, interestingly enough. Here's what it says O people of the scripture, do not commit excess in your religion or say about Allah except the truth. The Messiah, Jesus, the Son of Mary, was but a messenger of Allah, and his word which he directed to Mary and a soul created at a command from him. In other words, his created being. So believe in Allah and his messengers, and do not say three explicitly targeting the doctrine of the Trinity here. Do not say three, desist. It is better for you. Indeed, Allah is but one God. Exalted is he above having a son. To him belongs whatever is in the heavens and whatever is on earth, and sufficient is Allah as disposer of affairs. Now, it's interesting here that the Quran encourages belief in Jesus as a messenger from God. That's interesting. Now, what did Jesus think about his relationship with God? How did Jesus understand how he related to God? How did he define it? Well, you and I have a wonderful opportunity to discover that this morning and to discover whether Jesus thought of himself as the Son of God and whether he taught the doctrine of the Trinity because of John 5.18. I want you to look there. We got to this text last week, but But look what it says here. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And so the Jews clearly understood Jesus to be saying that he was equal with God. What he says in verse 17, my father is working until now and I am working. They took that to mean that Jesus was saying he was equal with God and they understood him to be saying that to the point where they were trying to kill him because that was a blasphemous thing for him to say in their minds. So how would Jesus respond to this? He's getting pressure. They're seeking to kill him. So what is he going to do? How's he going to respond? Hey, guys, let's clear the air here. I'm not saying I'm equal with God at all. In fact, I'm a messenger of Allah and God is one. I don't think Jesus is going to respond that way. And I bring up this fundamental difference between Islam and Christianity this morning Because I want this difference to help you to grasp the relationship between God, the Father, the Creator, God, and the the man, Jesus of Nazareth. What is the relationship between these two? Jesus who died on the cross and is the subject of these four Gospels. It is imperative that you come to grips with how Jesus, the man who's walking the earth here, who dies on the cross, who these gospels say rose from the dead, it is imperative that you understand how he relates to God the Father. That is the fundamental difference between the two major religions on earth, and it is absolutely necessary for you to grasp if you are going to rightly understand Jesus and, as you'll see, if you are to receive eternal life. And so I want to give you three reasons why this is so important that you grasp the relationship between the God, the Father, and Jesus Christ this morning. These are all taken from John 5, verses 19 through 30, and here's the first one on the screen. Three reasons you must rightly understand the relationship between God, the Father, and Jesus. First of all, because you can't make sense of Jesus without grasping his relationship to the Father. I mean, this is the starting point. You have to get this. Now, keep in mind that Jesus, back in verse 17, as I read you a few minutes ago, has subtly articulated his equality with God. Maybe not so subtly because the Jews took it to mean that he was claiming equality with God. God. And that's why they respond so harshly in verse 18. Now, if you think back into the Old Testament and you understand a little bit about Judaism, then you understand why they had such a problem with what Jesus was saying. The Jews were committed monotheists. They believed not in a plethora of gods, not in many gods, but in one God. That is maybe the defining difference between the Jews and every other religion in that part of the world at that time. Everybody else believed in multiple gods. They lived in Egypt, and the Egyptians worshipped multiple gods. Then they end up in Canaan, and the Canaanites had many gods that they served and worshipped. Now they're in the Roman Empire, and of course the Romans had an entire pantheon of gods whom they believed were divine and who they worshipped. Deuteronomy 6.4, the Shema, along with the Ten Commandments, made it quite clear in the Old Testament that there was one God and that he was the only God who was deserving of worship and honor. And so they read all of that, knew the history of Judaism, and they believed in one God. But then Jesus comes on the scene here, and he performs these signs, and he does these signs, heals this man on the Sabbath day, and then the audacity, he claims to be working as God works. and So they want to kill him. They want to go after him for this blasphemy. And Jesus responds to their persecution of him by launching into this rather lengthy monologue. This goes all the way from verse 19 to the end of chapter 5. And in a few weeks after Easter, we're going to take up the second part of this. But what he's doing in this first part is he he is explaining the relationship and defining the relationship that he has with God the Father. And then in the second half, he's going to give all of these witnesses to his claims. And so this is quite a package here defining the relationship and then giving witnesses that attest to the reality of this relationship quite an apologetic that Jesus is giving here and it's a monologue and he begins in verses 19 through 23 as you can see on the screen he's going to clearly define the relationship that he has with the father and this relationship is one of equality the jews are correct he is claiming to be equal with god and he understands himself to be equal with God. This is how he and the Father relate to one another. So as you're looking at these verses, as we walk through these, I want to give you five words. These are not on the screen. i want to give you five words that define the relationship between Father and Son. So if you're going to understand Jesus' relationship to the Father, you need to understand these five words. Unity, loving, Sharing, giving, and honoring. And they will unfold in these verses in that order. Unity, or unified, loving, sharing, giving, and honoring. Look at verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son Does likewise. What is Jesus saying here? The Father and the Son have a unity of mission and a unity of work. You'll see in verse 30 that they have a unity of will. Look there. I can do nothing on my own as I hear I judge and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will but the will of him who sent me. They have a unity of will and desire. They want the same things. You could say it this way. The son copies the father. Hebrews 1 gets at this. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is talking about Jesus Christ. Jason read from Colossians 1 this morning that calls Jesus the image of the invisible God, going all the way back into eternity. So, Take your mind back before creation, before anything else exists. No beginning at all. The Father has always, God the Father has always had this perfect image of himself. He's always had this perfect picture of himself and his attributes of what he is like. And that image is the Son of God, the reflection of God. And it's such a perfect image of himself. We're getting into deep waters here, I understand. But it's important that you begin to grasp this. This perfect image that the Father has of himself is so magnificent and perfect that it's actually a divine person, the second person of the Trinity. Now, when I'm talking about that, you're you're probably struggling a bit with it because we are temporal. So we think a copy comes after the original. But I'm not saying that Jesus comes after, the second person of the Trinity comes after the Father because they're both eternal. That perfect image has always been there. He's always been the representation, the image of the Father, the first and second person together. So it's not the case with the Trinity that the second person comes after the first. They've always been together in this relationship. They've always existed in this perfect unity, accurately mirroring and reflecting one another. Two persons, eventually three we'll see in the Gospel of John, but here, two persons, one essence, all the same qualities. And it's because of this perfect unity that they have, that we come to verse 20. And look how Jesus defines this relationship further. Look at what they share. For the Father loves the Son. The Father loves the Son. They share everything in common. He, the Father sees this accurate reflection of himself. He looks out and sees it. And this person he loves. We've already seen this in John 3.35. The father loves the son. We'll see this again later in John 17. But God the father looks out and sees a perfect image of himself. He's always beholding this image and always has. And he loves the perfection of his son. He delights in this. And the son looks right back and loves the father. And so this is, there's this perfect, loving, unified relationship They have delighted in one another going all the way back in eternity past and they will continue to delight in one another going all the way forward into eternity future. They rejoice in one another's perfection and character and they find delight and joy in that loving relationship. This is part of the reason it's so appropriate for us to come into church and be joyful. Because the Father and the Son have always existed in a joyful relationship. And so this, love and unity, leads them to share with one another. Look at the rest of verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. Nothing hidden, open communication between the two of them, between the two persons in one essence. Loving communion between the Father and the Son, communion that is complete. And in fact, as more and more is revealed, the purpose of this revelation is so that you and I can marvel at this loving relationship. This unity of relationship is further explored in verse 21. Look at the identification of the works of the Father with the same works that the Son does. Look at 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. Now, who in the Old Testament has the sovereign authority to give life and to take it away? There's only one individual who has this. Deuteronomy 32, 39. See now that I, even I am He, and there is no God beside me. I kill and make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. First Samuel 2 and verse 6. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. He has authority over life and death, and Jesus here is claiming not to merely be a messenger of God, not to merely tell truth about God. Jesus is claiming the same sovereign authority over life and death as the Father. And he has this authority because of the loving communion, unity, and relationship between the Father and the Son. And this loving relationship leads them to give to one another. Look at verse 22. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. And so it's here that you see these amazing realities of unity and distinction. And this is what is so mind-boggling about the Trinity and so beautiful and wonderful. Two persons and one essence. There's a distinction between the two, and yet there's complete unity of the two here. The Father gives the authority for judgment to the Son... Why does he do this? Look at verse 23. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Think about what Jesus has just claimed here for a second. The Father, the creator God of the universe, wants everyone to honor the Son. But in the Old Testament, God does not share his glory with anyone, does he? He will not allow anyone else to be honored and to be worshipped. You shall have no other gods before me. Now here, obviously, the Father wants everyone to honor the Son in just the same way that they honor the Father. What does that tell you? They're both deserving of the same adoration and worship because they're both God. Now, that's a lot to take in regarding this relationship here. And the thing is, we normally, I think, shy away from going into the depths of the relationships between the members of the Trinity. We, we think about the doctrine of the Trinity sometimes as academic, something maybe for scholars or for pastors to think about and consider And we think, I know I'm supposed to believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. I'm just not sure all the details and why I'm supposed to believe in it. But you can't really make sense of Jesus without understanding his unity, love, giving, and sharing relationship with God the Father. And not only that, you can't understand Jesus, but you cannot come to Christ. And your present salvation depends on this unity of relationship between the Father and the Son. You have to understand this because our present salvation, our present experience of eternal life depends on this relationship. Here's what the unity and love between the Father and the Son means practically for you and for me. Look at verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. When you hear, because of this unity of relationship, because of the loving communion, when you hear Jesus speak in this gospel and believe it, you're believing in the creator God of the universe. Because he is the creator God of the universe. They have a unity of purpose and of mission, and to believe in Jesus is ultimately to believe in God, if you accurately understand who he is. First John talks about this. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar. Because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. Believing in the son is believing in the father. And believing the father's perspective and understanding of the son is to accurately believe who Jesus is and it is to receive eternal life. Now, I want you to notice something in verse 24. This experience of eternal life is not something you have to wait for until you die. Look at what it says there. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Not will get, but has eternal life. If you believe in the Son, if you accept God's word about his Son as is given in passages like this regarding his unity with the Son, if you believe that and trust in him for salvation and you believe in the Father, you currently, right now, have eternal life. Now, What does that mean? What does it look like? I don't feel that way. Like, I have eternal life right now. What does it mean to experience this life right now? Ultimately, what this means is because of the relationship between Father and Son, eternal life means you are invited into that relationship. That's the ultimate end of our salvation. That's what everything is driving toward. You get an invitation to right now be a part of the family to experience the loving communion between the Father and the Son through the Spirit. Listen to John 1, verses 12 and 13. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God means being adopted into his family. John 17, 3, this is life eternal. He defines it for us. This is what it is. It's not just living forever. It's knowing the Father and the Son. It's experiencing the loving relationship between the two and being invited into that and having God's love shed abroad in your heart through the Spirit. One author put it this way. Whoops. All those passages. The good news of salvation is ultimately that God opens his Trinitarian life to us. Every other blessing is either a preparation for that or a result of it. But the thing itself is God's graciously taking us into the fellowship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to be our salvation. That's it. That's everything. What could be better than that? A loving communion that has existed for eternity past and that you as a sinner who has rebelled against God and broken his commandments because of his love for his creation expressed in his son, you have been invited in to partake in that loving communion and to become a member of the family. Everything else flows from that reality. And because of that reality, look at the end of verse 24. This is true of you and I right now. Look there. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. This means that despite your sin, despite your history, whatever it may be, you are not going to be punished for your sins because of Jesus Christ because he has taken them on your behalf and you were invited into the family. Now you are one of God's children and you are completely and totally forgiven for your sins. Wiped away, not held responsible for them. That's a truth you can wake up to every morning. That's a truth that you can get out of bed and when anxiety hits your heart, when you look at all that you have to do at that day, you can wake up to that truth and remind yourself that you do not stand under judgment, but you are partaking of the relationship between the Father and the Son. You have been invited in as a child of God. But it's not just something you experience now, of course. There also is a future aspect to this that is delightful and joyful, and it gives us hope for what's to come. And that future, final resurrection part of our salvation depends on the relationship between the Father and the Son. So here's why you need to understand this. Because our future resurrection depends on this relationship. So if verse 24 is talking about the present experience of eternal life, no condemnation, waking up to that reality as a child of God every morning, This next section turns our focus to the future. And this is what's coming for us. And this, our confidence in the future, our confidence in what will happen to us after we die is based on the unity of the Father and the Son. You can be sure that you, if you are a believer in Christ, will wake up in Christ and you will one day get a new resurrection body free from sin and free from pain and suffering, and you will experience the loving communion of the Father and the Son for all eternity, you can be confident of that because of the relationship between Jesus and the Father. Look at verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Now, When you read this, it's hard not to think about, if you're familiar with the Gospel of John, the raising of Lazarus. And I think that's what Jesus is getting at here. The hour is here now. It's it's here because Lazarus is going to be raised. The voice of God is going to call him out of the tomb. It's going to happen in John 11. And I think Jesus here is definitely talking about physical bodies being raised. From the dead. And so he's looking forward to this happening to Lazarus, which is happening then at the present, but the full harvest of physical bodies being raised is going to come in the future. Now, how can we be sure? How do we know that eternal life, physical eternal life, is going to happen? Well, it's based on the relationship between father and son, and that's what he goes back to in 26 and 27. Look there. For, here's why that harvest is coming. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. We can be sure that resurrection to life is going to happen because of the unity and the communion between the Father and the Son. It's the same description, right? Right? You just saw this description, life and judgment are given into the hands of the Son, the unity of purpose and of work between the Son and the Father. That's what we just saw back in verses 21, 22, and 23. He's going right back to that, and now he's looking ahead to our confidence in the future. And here, he's looking to the future, and he uses this very interesting title for Jesus. He uses it of himself, the Son of Man. Why does he say that? Well, he's not pulling that out of thin air. He's not just coming up with that title. He's connecting this and Jesus' authority to judge and his sovereign authority overall to this title because this title comes up in a passage in the Old Testament that anticipates God's final kingdom coming. And it's used specifically to talk about God's Agent in salvation and the future king. And it's used in Daniel 7. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him, the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one. That shall not be destroyed. This title, Son of Man, Jesus uses this here because it identifies him with this individual from Daniel 7, and it points forward to the time when his kingdom will fully arrive and everything will be made right. And coinciding with the arrival of that kingdom are two resurrections one to life and one to judgment. Look at 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. You can see the connection here between life and judgment, the two possible results. Everyone here will be a part of one of these two resurrections. Life and judgment, both Come through Jesus. And how we respond to Jesus makes all the difference because of the relationship between the Father and the Son. And what is Jesus pointing to here? Revelation 20. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. This is the future time when these two resurrections will happen. Some to life, physical life in relationship with the Father and the Son for all eternity through the Spirit because of their connection to Jesus, because their names are written in the book of life, and everyone else to eternal judgment and condemnation and death because their names were not found written in the book of life. They did not possess eternal life. Now, when you look at 28 and 29 here, I just want to make sure of something before we continue. Jesus is not arguing here that we receive resurrection life based on good works. I know it can sort of appear that way when you first look at this passage. But the Gospel of John has been quite clear so far that eternal life, resurrection life, comes through belief over and over again. In chapters 1 through 4, that has been the point. So what is Jesus doing here? What he's doing here is the same thing that John does in Revelation 20. He's linking the way you live life, the actions of your life, with your eternal destination. True faith will result in good works. That's how it's designed to work. That's how God intends it to work. New life is lived out as new life, and it creates good works. The fruit of the Spirit comes when the Spirit inhabits you. Not perfectly. There's ups and downs. Y'all get that. But true life is cultivated in your daily experience, and the end result of that is resurrection life. There are many, many passages in the New Testament that talk about this. Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. They're not optional. It's not like, "Eh, maybe I might do some good works or not. No, that's what you were saved for and created for. God prepared them beforehand that you would walk in them. True believers evidence their faith by good works, by the fruit of the Spirit. John 4, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother he is a liar for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love god whom he has not seen and this commandment we have from him whoever loves god must also love his brother ultimately our future resurrection to life depends on jesus and on his ability to give life which depends on his relationship to the father if jesus is just a messenger a messenger of God, then his claims here in this passage are blasphemous. And he's not a very good messenger. He's not a messenger that we would want to trust. In fact, he's a liar. And his claims are audacious. And they're damning claims because they direct us to a relationship that's not really there. We actually can't do what God wants us to do if Jesus is just a messenger. And this is really the crux of this whole passage. And it's the the center of the confrontation with the Jewish leaders. Is Jesus God? Is he equal with God? This is the heart of the difference between the two most prominent and most followed religions in the world. Who is Jesus Christ? And that question and how you answer that question cascades down into every other area of your life. It shapes and determines your entire view of reality. I want to read you this quote. I found this very helpful. The Jews and Jesus are operating in different versions of reality. The Jews think they are doing what is right, they do not think Jesus is equal with God, so they do not think he should heal on the Sabbath. They think that what Jesus has done is sinful and that his justification of what he has done is blasphemous. This is their understanding of reality, informing their reaction to Jesus. Jesus, of course, is operating in the real world. In the real world, Jesus is God. In the real world, the fact that the Father works on the Sabbath authorizes Jesus to do the same. Because the Father has given this right to Jesus. In the real world, Jesus is in the right. And anyone who questions or challenges him is in the wrong. So I'd like to ask you a few questions as we finish this morning. Who do you think Jesus is? I mean, really. As you read this gospel, who do you actually think he is? These are some audacious claims that he's making that he should receive the same honor as the Father. Who do you think he is? How does your lifestyle reflect your belief concerning who Jesus is? So intellectually, you may say, well, Jesus is God. But let's start at the other end. Let's start with your lifestyle and work our way back to your belief. What does your lifestyle demonstrate about who you think Jesus is? Because if he's God... It changes everything about the way you should live and about reality. And finally, if the purpose of your salvation is to enter into loving communion or experiencing the loving communion between the Father and the Son, let me ask you, if that's the goal and that's the purpose, what is one step you can take this week to realize and fulfill that purpose? In other words, how can you cultivate the communion that you have been gifted between the Father and the Son. How can you do that this week? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're so thankful for this text, for the clarity of who you are and how you relate to God the Father. We're thankful for the unity, the love, the sharing, giving, and communing relationship that you have, because our salvation, both now and in the future, depends on that. Thank you for the gift of eternal life, for the communion that we have with you. Thank you for your grace. It's in Christ's name we pray.